Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. We are going to take, in Romans chapter 14, we're going to take this huge portion of, of text together. Romans chapter 14, all the way through chapters, to, through chapter 15, verse number 7. Um, and if the, Lord, if the Lord keeps me concise this morning, we're going to get all the way through that. Now, how many of you are already texting somebody next to you saying, I'm taking bets on whether on the over and under on this one, right? Nobody's going to take that bet because you are thinking, I know my pastor, he can't even introduce himself in under 10 minutes. So there's no way we're going verse by verse through all these, all, through, through a chapter and a half and doing that. So um, no way he can do this, right? Um, so this is going to be a test on whether we serve a God of miracles today. All right, I'm just, I'm just going to be, just going to be quite honest with you, all right? But so since we got a lot to cover, let's not waste time and let's go ahead and get into it. Chapters 14 through 15, verse number 17 are really just one long discussion by the Apostle Paul uh, here on just an, on, on a real important subject, um, and it, it's, it's, it's basically talking about, it deals with the problems of questionable things in the Christian life and what to do when sincere Christians, well-intentioned Christians, Christians who all love Jesus and are trying their best to glorify him and honor him in their lives, when they disagree on what it looks like to honor him. Okay, now we're not talking about issues of doctrinal integrity like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ or the deity of Jesus Christ or the fact that Jesus is the son of God and that he's the only way to heaven. We're talking about some other issues that don't necessarily relate to the gospel integrity like we're talking about, okay? And I, don't, I know some of you before have, uh, have probably heard this, that in some churches, not our church of course, but in some churches... The, tr- the people don't always get along with each other. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard they don't get along with you? They argue over stuff. They just generally don't agree on some things. And now thanks to social media, the beautiful, the beautiful truth of social media is that now the whole world, even outside the church, can watch God's kids just bicker and fight over things that really don't matter. And I tell you, it's a good look for the gospel. It really is. It's a good look on the kingdom of God that we just keep arguing on Facebook and Twitter over, over things that really aren't going to matter when we stand before the throne of God, right? Um, I love what, um, I, I love the way that Warren Wearsby puts this. His, his description of this entire section is, it's what do we do when well-intentioned Christians argue over questionable things that seem like they might be some gray areas, and what do we do, and how do we get along with one another? Because scripture says that we've got to learn to pursue unity, right? One of the goals and one of the requirements of someone who's part of the church, who's part of the body of Christ, is to pursue unity. What does that mean? That means that we've got to learn a way to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Because church is not just coming to a service, singing some songs, listening to a religious lecture, and then going off to lunch with the people that we do like. Unity in Christ means that we are coming together for to see the world changed. And, and, and friends, if the world doesn't see the church unified, how will they ever see the importance of being unified amongst themselves? And how will they ever see value within the church? And how will they ever see value in the gospel? Because if Jesus can't even unite his kids, how is he supposed to bring the people that are far from him to him? See, we, we kind of we wear that. See, most people look at unity and they think it's when everybody agrees on everything and everyone's on the same page and everyone thinks just alike, they act alike, they talk alike and, and all those types of things. But unity 
in that definition, a lot of people think unity is achieved when everybody agrees with me, right? Now, I'll tell you that. I, I tend to that because I'm the smartest person I know. I'm also the humblest person I know too, right? So if everybody would just agree with me, their lives would be so much simpler, right? You know I'm just joking there, right? Okay, some of you, if you take everything literally, you're thinking, this guy is nuts. Um, unity, here's the thing though, that's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is not when everybody just is a carbon copy of each other and looks exactly like each other, talks and thinks, and has the same you know, hobbies and interests and all that stuff. That's not what church unity is. Biblical unity is the cohesion of different parts of, for an overall purpose. Take the throne room of heaven in Revelation when it says there will be people from every nation and tribe and tongue and they will all be robed in white and they will all stand amongst each other. That means there's not going to just be an American section sitting over there in the throne room of heaven and an African section over here and a South American section over here. No, we're all blended together one another because skin color doesn't matter, nation doesn't matter, tongue doesn't matter because before God all that matters is saved and lost, sheep and goat child adopted and orphan. That's what matters. Because when Jesus' blood washes over us, all those differences are supposed to disintegrate in the eyes of the kingdom of God, and we're supposed to look through the eyes of the kingdom. See, biblical unity is not uniformity. Biblical unity is a cohesion of, over, of, of different parts for an overall purpose, and you can't accomplish unity without diversity. And that means we have to approach issues in the church or even issues that we face as we live in this real world and how a Christian should respond to that. We have to approach that with a loose hand on some issues and a tight grip on some others. See, Augustine gets the credit for this phrase. In essentials of the faith or in doctrine, he says, seek unity. In non-essentials of, of the faith, seek liberty. But in all things, seek love. That means that we must, even if we have a disagreement or if a person doesn't see something exactly the way we see it, it means we've still got to love them. And especially in today's cultural context, it's like we've got the freedom to hate people who don't agree with us. And that is not a freedom that is granted to the children of God within the word of God. We do not get to opt out of the greatest commandment to love God and love others. That is commandment number one. So back in chapter 12, Paul commands the church to live in harmony with one another. And if you've ever sang in a choir or in unison or, or in, a, in, a, in a singing group with somebody, you know what harmony is, right? Harmony is when you take the parts of, of a song or the, vo the vocal parts and you blend them together to make one beautiful sound when it's come together. The beautiful thing about this is a tenor doesn't sing, a ten when a tenor sings his part, it doesn't sound the same as the baritone or the bass. And when the soprano sings her part, it doesn't sound the same as the alto. But when you blend them all together, it makes a sound that none of them could produce on their own. This is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a cohesion of people who God has gifted differently, who has minded differently, who God is speaking to and has a different plan for in their lives to come together and do things for Christ that we could never do on our own, but we do them together. That's the goal. But there's some things that begin to harm the unity within the body of Christ. And one of those things is what Paul's going to be talking about here in chapter 14 through chapter 15. And that is when Christians disagree with one another. When Christians disagree with one another. So, well, how could we disagree? We got the word and it tells us exactly how to think on everything. And I want to stop you right there because it doesn't tell us exactly how to think on every single issue and every single thing. 
And that may be like, like kind of mind-blowing, but that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I'll say this, in, in, in searching and in studying this passage, I feel like I've personally learned and grown a, a, a whole lot just in studying this passage. It's amazing. So let's go ahead and dive in. Verse number one, it says this. Um, okay, well, let me say this too. One thing I am certain about is that every one of you at one point in this message is going to hate me or going to get mad at me or look at me like, why are you saying this? I don't, I can't follow you. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that, okay? Because you're not going to like some things. Because this is going to be an equal opportunity offensive message to everybody today, all right? So verse number 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. I, I'm, I'm really excited to be here today, by the way. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, okay? That sounds great. Off to a great start. Welcome people who are weak in the faith. That's wonderful. And all of us have an idea of who it might be that's weak in the faith, right? Okay? Now we're going to talk about why we might think they're weak in the faith. But then he says, don't argue about disputed matters. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Let's stop here because this is the key verse. And you're like, yeah, we ain't getting through all this. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, no, we're not. This is going to be like two parts, okay? We're going to only cover like five verses today. And then Lord willing, cover the rest of them together later, okay? So let's break this down. This last part of this verse. He says, welcome anyone who's weak in the faith. That sounds like the role of the church. Welcome someone who's weak in the faith and move them towards spiritual maturity. That should be the goal of the church. Our goal, each service, my goal as I preach each service is that at the end of the service, I hope to have helped to move anyone who's willing to go one step closer to Jesus than they were before they came in the building. That's what I hope, right? That's my prayer. So our goal should be to welcome those who are weak in the faith with the hope that they will move towards spiritual maturity. But then he says, but don't argue over disputed matters. Why would he put those two thoughts together? Because just like today in today's church, in the old church, in the ancient church, in the first church back there in Rome, they were thinking that the way to get towards spiritual maturity was to argue their way and persuade people to the, the mature people in their minds thought they could argue and, and spread their way into bringing people to their way of thinking right? Disputed matters, these are the things that are prone, that we're prone to disagree about in church that really shouldn't lead to division and breaking of fellowship or even saying, like, I'm going to leave the church over this issue, which by the way, a lot of the reasons that we leave or think about leaving churches today are really not biblical reasons for leaving a church. So this is what this is talking about here in this passage. This is not to say that there's never anything that a church should divide over. There's never something that, uh, that should cause you to say, I don't think I'm in line with that church anymore. There are issues. But for the love of God, there are over 31 different distinctive flavors of Baptists today. Do you know how they got there? It wasn't because they found big tier issues to divide over. They argued over these disputed matters and said, well, I'm going to find everybody that I agree with and we're going to go over here and do our own thing while you do your own thing and go to hell. That's really kind of the way a lot of this has come to be. And Paul says, this is not of God. This thinking is not of God. And he corrects that kind of thinking a little bit. These disputed matters are not theological matters as they're clearly defined as sin or righteousness in scripture. They're what many people would call second tier or third tier issues. Now there are times when maybe your church begins to move in a direction that is not theologically sound. And that's when you have to begin seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance on that. But the Holy Spirit will never lead us to a place of just anger and spite and leaving in a way that creates chaos and confusion and hurt. So these disputed matters, they're not theological. They're usually over second tier, third tier things. Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary up in Louisville, he's credited with coining this idea called theological triage. Now, if you 
are familiar with, with the medical field, triage is usually used in the ER so that when you have people coming in the ER and, and they come for all kinds of different things. You know, some people come for uh, gunshot wounds. And other people will come if, you know, they have a goober that's lodged too high in their nose, okay, like my family has been known to do a few times because it's just obstructing breath and, you know, we just didn't realize, oh, we should have blowed our nose a little bit harder, right? So th- because that's happening all the time, the doctors have had to develop this system called triage, meaning that if I'm dealing with Johnny and his, and his goober, then if a guy comes in in the ambulance in a gunshot and we need more help, then Johnny's going to have to sit there with his goober a little bit longer and we're going to go help the guy with the gunshot because that's the most urgent thing at that point. That's life and death. This over here is not. Al Mohler says theologically, and when it comes to Christian fellowship, when it comes to Christian living, there are issues that we can exercise theological triage on as well. He says, there's first tier issues. It's the gunshot wound kind of issue. That's the issues that are vitally essential to the Christian faith and to the gospel message, but they're not necessary, but they are necessarily related and to salvation and redemption. Those are the issues of like the inerrancy of scripture, the fact that what God says God means and that God has authority. Uh, These are the issues of salvation. These are the issues of grace and how we attain it. The fact that God is the son of God, that he is, that he is God himself. Those are first tier issues that are spelled out in scripture and God doesn't stutter or stumble over those things. He's absolutely clear. Those are the things that we hold tightly with a firm grip and we hold steadfast to. And we say, this is the word of the Lord and he doesn't make any bones about it. That's first tier. Those are the things that if you start saying, look man, my preacher just got up and said Jesus wasn't the son of God. We've got a problem, right? The second tier issues are, these are issues which are essential to the Christian faith, but they're not necessarily related directly to how a person gets saved or how a person is redeemed. So we're talking about issues of morality, issues of gender, sexuality, marriage, those things. And here's the thing, the first and second tier issues are usually 99.99% of the time going to be clearly listed in scripture with no stuttering or stumbling. You can go to the word and you can say, thus thus saith the Lord. And you can find chapter and verse and you can feel confident in this is what God said and he's very clear about his will and his desire here. But then you get into the third tier issues. These are the things that aren't clearly as spelled out. They're not essential to salvation. They're not really even essential to doctrinal integrity. These are the things where if looking for a chapter and verse, one person in the church might find this verse and say, but it says this, so don't you think it means that we should do this? While another person says, yeah, I know it says this here, but it says this over here. And doesn't that mean that we should do this over here? And you got both people who are well-intentioned, both want to honor God, both have what they seem to be a chapter and verse. They may have to be doing some mental gymnastics to get there, but that's where they are. Because let's be honest, these issues may not be something that's directed, related directly to sending a person to heaven or to hell. So while the Bible is authoritative and abundantly clear on many foundational and universally applied matters, there are some matters which scripture leaves open to preference, open to opinion, or even open, open to cultural application. These are the disputed matters that Paul is talking about in verse number one. These are these disputed matters. It's not, he's not saying that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ sets men free from, from their sins. He's not saying that's a disputed matter. That is a settled matter. That is a settled matter. It's settled forever in heaven. God ain't changing on that and nobody else can, ma- can match it. There's nothing else. And here's what Paul says in Galatians. Galatians says this. If anybody preaches a gospel that is different from this one, right, when he's speaking of the gospel, 
Here's what he says. Label them a false teacher and a heretic and don't even let them in the church doors. So he's not just saying, hey man, whatever you think goes. He's not saying that. He's saying there are some things that you don't let go of. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, if somebody is practicing open immorality, they should be removed from your fellowship as well. So he's saying there are some things that God is very clear about. But I love here what Pastor J.D. Greer says about this. He says, for many things, for many things in the Christian life, God hasn't spelled out exactly what he wants to the letter. So instead of directives, we are given principles as he expects us to use wisdom in applying them to new situations. So for instance, God is not going to say, in the Bible, when you're thinking about, okay, what should I watch on TikTok? There's, you don't go to the book of First Thessalonians and it says, when watching TikTok, watch this, 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 and this account. That would be a directive from God. A principle from God would be, be careful of what you take in through the eye. Be careful of what you do because it will, you know, it, it could hurt you, right? So this is theological triage. And then it goes on to say, and this is the mark of maturity. Here's the mark of maturity. Having the wisdom to know what the right thing to do is when it isn't spelled out to the letter in scripture. And this is what we oftentimes argue over in church. Not the things that are spelled out, but the things that aren't. The things that we say, okay, doesn't a mature Christian do this or think this when it comes to this issue? No, I don't think so. I consider myself a mature Christian and I don't see it that way. And then all of a sudden, bam, we're fighting about it, right? Because we tend to spiritualize everything, right? And, 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 and this is the thing. When parenting your kids, this is the way God is with us. When parenting our kids, we don't want to have to be there until when they're 50 years old telling them when it's time to go to the bathroom, or telling them what is right and wrong in this specific situation. So what do we do? We instill values and principles that will guide them in every issue that they have to go. This is what God does to us many times in the word for the things that we face on earth today. One day, we're not going to have to worry about it. Because God's going to have a perfect world set up and we're not going to have to worry about it. We're always going to know and we're always going to do the exact right thing. But until then, God gives us his principles and says, give me your heart. So this is why theological triage is really important to remember because there are some things where it really doesn't matter how we see an issue because God has been abundantly clear in the word how he sees it and that is the only right way. These are the first and second tier issues but there are a lot of things that are open to interpretation and God truly loves those who are on both sides and those who are on both sides truly love God as well. So maturity and wisdom is seen in how we restrain ourselves in letting our opinion and those disputed, disputed matters rise to the level of doctrine. This is the problem that we get into when we let those disputed matters rise to that, come from that third tier level and get up to that first tier, tier level. Because God doesn't intend for those to be there. And when we do that, we begin to put a whole lot of weight. And then we cause our brothers and sisters to stumble into either anger or frustration or into moving into ways that they are uncomfortable. So spiritual maturity, I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says here. Spiritual maturity is not just about developing strong convictions about every single thing. It's about learning how to show restraint in the weight that you give to those convictions. Learning that not every conviction you have on every level is life and death. Dr. Tony Evans says this, many man-made rules address things that aren't clearly spelled out in scripture. When we talk about human rules as if they're God's ideas, we harm those who are weak in the faith as we're going to see here in our text. So what I want to do, and I really struggle with the title of the message today, and I kind of settled on the gospel calls us to a loving unity. 
loving unity. I kind of struggled with this because I wanted to actually call it like, um, you know, kind of like the, the gospel, uh, because I tried to make it say the gospel in everything. So I, I thought about going with the gospel of theological triage or the gospel of just learning how to mind our own business or something like that. But I settled on the gospel of loving unity. But both of those other things apply. So I want to address five questions over the next couple of weeks that we need to ask ourselves to determine whether I'm looking for and expecting biblical unity or uniformity when it comes to how I look at other believers and how I look at other people and how they live their life and what I expect from my community of faith. So let's look at this. And just to settle any bets, no, we're not tackling all five of those today. We're going to tackle two or three next Sunday as well. So we're going to try to do two today and three next Sunday. So, and I see I've only got about like, you know, 10 minutes left. So we may even cover all two of them today either. So question number one, and this is the biggie. This is the biggie right out the gate. Am I living and acting with a clean conscience? Am I living and acting with a clean conscience? Now let's jump into verse number two and see what it says here. It says one person, he says, remember this, he says, accept those who are weak in the faith and don't fight about disputed matters. And so he's going to go ahead and start jumping into what those disputed matters are in the Roman church. He says, one person believes that he may eat anything. Clearly a Baptist, right? Clearly. Give me all the food, right? I won't do any other vice, but I will have my food, right? While one who is weak eats only vegetables, For me, that hurts my soul to think of people like that, right? And then you skip down to verse number five. We see the other one. It says, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. And someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one fully be convinced in his own mind. So in this text, what we see here is Paul is addressing two hot button issues that the Roman church were fighting about. And like you, if you could imagine it, when they came into church, you had the meat eaters sitting over here and you had the veggie eaters sitting over here, okay? And they were like mad at each other. Could you imagine how their potluck dinners went? right? All right. Okay. We got the vegetarian table over here. We got you keto people over here and all. It's it's just a mess, right? This was, this wasn't about a dietary issue. Okay. They weren't just fighting over vegetarians saying, well, you shouldn't eat meat and, and, and all this stuff. This was a different thing. And it went a little deeper than that. Okay. So what was happening is Rome was this, this, this pagan city, this Gentile pagan city that, all, that had for centuries always lived on pagan idol worship. So everywhere you went, there were these massive, beautiful temples that were erected to all of these Roman gods, this pantheon of gods that they had. All right. And so the way that they would worship, and they would also worship ancestors as well that had gone on before them. They would kind of look to them for wisdom and believe that they could converse with them. And the way that they had that, that, that communication was that they could get blessed by one of the gods. So they would take meat and they would take this, this stuff down there to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the temple and they would lay this meat down as an offering to the gods, hoping to appease them and so that they could get a blessing. So imagine you've prepped this ribeye steak, man. Instead of diving into it, you get in your car and you run down to City Hall and you lay this down at at the foot of one of the statues that's down there and say, man, I hope I get a blessing from him and they just leave it there. The problem was these statues, these gods, they never seemed to be hungry. Imagine that marble and stone can't even pick up their food even if they were, right? And so what would happen is the priests of those temples would take that meat and if they didn't eat it for themselves, they had so much left over, they would just send it to the market and it would be sold at a discounted rate because after all, it's been sitting out for a while and flies have kind of been around it and stuff. So it's, think about like Dollar Tree steak, you know, like the, the $1 steaks that you can get at the Dollar Tree, which don't go and do that, okay? 
So there we go there. So a lot of people were saying, man, I'm going to go get this, this meat over here because it's cheaper, right? The stuff that's been offered to these gods. And so there were some, some Christians there that had been saved out of paganism and Jewish Christians who really had a problem with this because they said, look, this meat has been offered to false gods and there's evil, wicked practices going on with that. And if we buy that discounted meat, we are becoming a part of that wicked practice. On top of the fact was a lot of the Jewish Christians said, I still follow my kosher diet, which I know Jesus said everything is clean, but I'm still following my kosher diet. And a lot of it was pork. And so they were saying, I'm not going to eat any of that. And so, so in effort to not accidentally even eat food that they didn't know was offered to idols, they just said, I'm not going to eat any meat at all. So I'm going to go with the Daniel diet. It was good enough for him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's good enough for us. On the other side, and in the same church, what you had was some people who said, look, man, those gods aren't real anyway. We serve the one true God. So if they want to lay their meat out before, before a piece of rock, and I get to get their meat cheaper, that's fine for me. It's meat is meat, and it has no evil juju on it or anything. And I don't believe that kosher laws exist anymore either, so God fulfilled the law, so pass the bacon, man. And so what you had was people here, both well-intentioned, both wanted to serve God, both loved Jesus, right? And it wasn't really clear on if whether it was really a sin or not. God didn't say, don't eat meat that was offered to false idols. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture, right? So they had this fight and they were fighting about that and they were having problems. And like I said, you can imagine how their potlucks were, right? You know, you can imagine one of the meat eaters going, hey, Johnny, come over here for a second. You want to eat this uh, lettuce and tomato sandwich I've got for you? <laughs> it's got bacon under that lettuce, buddy. Gotcha. You know, that, that's the kind of attitude that people were having. And what Paul says is, don't argue over that, man. All right. Then there were some other people there, and this was mainly Jewish, the Jewish believers as well, who had been raised their whole life to worship on Saturday because the Sabbath was the holy day. And so God had set that apart as the day of rest. Well, when Jesus was crucified, many people said this. They said when Jesus was crucified, he completed all of those laws. And our real Sabbath is not in a day. Every day is about the same as the other. If there's any day that should be set apart, it's the day that he resurrected from the dead and completed everything. But Sabbath is in Jesus. My rest, my, my rest and my strength comes from Jesus. So the Sabbath laws and the Sabbath days don't really matter anymore. And so what Paul is saying here is learn to respect each other because you both kind of had the idea that you want to serve and honor God. They weren't trying to keep those laws because they thought it was going to send them to heaven or hell. They wanted to keep those laws because they wanted to honor Jesus. It was something in them that felt like this wasn't right. And what Paul is saying Stop fighting about it and just love each other in it and love one another for the fact that you both want to honor Christ. What he's saying is two things can be true at the same time. And he also says both of you can be wrong at the same time too. Right? So he says do everything with a clean conscience, with a clear conscience. So we see the instruction in the last part of verse number five. He says, let everyone be convinced in his own mind. In other words, in Christ, we have the liberty to follow our convictions on those third tier matters, but we don't have the right to invoke those personal preferences on our brothers and sisters who are convicted otherwise and love Christ just as much. Did you catch that? We are free to follow the way we feel spiritually led, but in issues that don't lead to heaven and hell, we need to give our brothers and sisters a break and not look down on them like we're the only ones righteous and they're not. We need to give them the freedom. 
See, I realize that we're, we're not fighting about idols and we're not fighting about what day we should worship on and we're not fighting about any of that stuff. But this principle needs to be applied in a lot of things that we look at today. And here's the part where everybody's going to get offended. Okay? Everybody in here is going to get mad. And I mean everybody because I'm as mad at myself. Okay? See, we have our idol and meat argument in church a lot today, don't we? But they're not about idols and meats and they're not about special days. Some say, when it comes to how we worship, some say that it's a conviction about what I wear when I come to church. There's some that say, it's my, I want to wear my absolute best when I come to church because I wouldn't go meet the president or the king of England or the queen of England just wearing something that I would normally wear around the house. So doesn't God deserve better than that? And that's a good reasoning. It's about honoring God. Others of you would say no, because man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. So it doesn't matter what you wear so long as your heart is on him and you're covered. And some of you would say that drums and electric guitars have no place in worship music because they're so prevalent in secular music that it doesn't glorify God. So why bring those instruments into this holy place? While others say, doesn't Psalm say to praise him with crashing cymbals and high sounding strings and the instruments themselves aren't evil so much as what you're doing with them? You see, we've heard arguments like that, haven't we? And when it comes to some of the things that we do in life as well, we argue, right? See, some people say that Christians shouldn't engage in some forms of entertainment like movies or secular music because it's about being separate from all of that and living in an alternate kind of separate world as much as you possibly can. Like, should a Christian, this was several years back, but should a Christian read or watch the Harry Potter series? See, some say it's clearly all about witchcraft. Because literally it's about witches and wizards and some of the phrases come from the occult. So we should avoid any hint of that. Others say, that's just a fantasy genre. Like Lord of the Rings or like, uh, like the Chronicles of Narnia. Which both have magic in them but they were written by deeply Christian authors. So we respect those. It does have elements that seem evil but yet there's still good that can be pulled out of it as well. And then they go on to say too, I mean, the kids at Hogwarts, they celebrate Christmas in one of the movies, so clearly they're not full Satanists. And plus the author of the books is a member of the Church of England. And they've even got a book called The Gospel According to Harry Potter. So some of you say, I use this as a great tool to teach my kids about good and evil and identifying and looking for godly elements, even in what we would consider to be secular things. See, there's arguments on both ends, right? Alcohol is a real biggie today. Like I said, y'all are going to get mad at me today, right? Some of you are teetotalers. Won't touch a drop of alcohol. And you've got a chapter and a verse like Proverbs that says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoever is deceived by it is not wise. And you've even done deep dives into just what it was that Jesus turned the water into at the wedding of Cana. And you've come to the conclusion that it wasn't actually alcoholic wine because it was the first ever glasses of Welch's that existed. While others say... That while scripture is very clear that being drunk is a sin, it's not very clear on whether we have liberty to drink in moderation for various reasons like medicinal reasons or for celebratory reasons like we see some doing in scripture and God not having a negative connotation on it. You got chapters and verses on your argument too. Like in Mark chapter 17 when Jesus says that nothing that you put into your body is spiritually unclean because it's just going to pass through your body anyway and that's all physical. That's pretty graphic to think of, isn't it? Or you mentioned that the Pharisees tried to bring evidence that Jesus was a glutton and a wine-bibber or a drunk. And you say, well, how would they ever have brought evidence that Jesus was a drunk if they hadn't seen Jesus drink a glass of wine? 
And if Jesus drank alcohol but was without sin, then was him drinking, then how did he drink alcohol without being charged with that sin? And at the wedding of Cana, since we're talking about it, the master of ceremonies tasted it and said this was the finest wine that had been offered in the whole reception. So there's arguments on both ends, right? And I know what you're sitting there thinking, all right, are you going to tell us which one's right? Nope. Told you you're going to get mad at me. We just gone through a global pandemic, right? Wasn't that fun and we're still dealing with some of it, right? Don't you remember, don't you remember those days of sitting down and talking about the theology of masks or the theology of a vaccine? Some Christians say, I'm commanded to love my neighbor and seek their well-being, so I'm going to lock down and watch virtual church, and I'm going to wear my mask, and I'm going to get the vaccine to do my part not to spread this virus. And they felt compelled by the Spirit because I'm commanded to love my neighbor. Others Christians said, faith over fear. God's sovereign, and he holds my life in his hands anyway, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live my life. I ain't wearing a mask because that covers my face, which is the very image of God on me. If God wants to protect me from the virus, I don't matter if I wear a mask or not. I trust God as a great physician, so I'm not going to be faithless and get a vaccine that could be possibly the mark of the beast anyway. We heard those arguments, right? And if you go to the word of God, you could find where people were coming from on both sides of the aisle, right? Same thing with alcohol. Same thing with some of the other stuff. One more. Some Christians don't understand how you can call yourself a Christian and vote the way that you do. On both sides of the aisle. Some say that a man like Donald Trump, who has such ethical and moral deficiencies and who says so much inhumane and derogatory things about others, should never get a Christian support. That it doesn't matter what good he may have done, that he has encouraged division and hatred and bigotry in our nation, and none of that is of Christ, and that there's no good political benefit that would, uh, that would rise above our need to have a good witness. While others say... I may not be a fan of what he does or what he says, and I wish that they would get rid of his Twitter, but I like him better than the other alternatives, and all the Democrats support abortion policies and those that oppose Christian values and ideas on morality and marriage, and they promote restrictions on Christian, on religious freedom. So while Trump may come across as a jerk, I think he's the better choice. And if anyone votes for someone other than him, they may be wrong. And the other people say, never Trump. If you vote for Trump, you can't truly be a Christian. Man. We all heard the arguments, right? And they all have good reasons, but they're all from the different sides of looking at it, right? Here's the point I'm trying to get at. In every situation I used, there's truth on both ends of the spectrum. There are matters where two opposing views can be true at the same time, and we are left to seek God and his convincing nature on our spirit. And what I struggle with sometimes, that if the Holy Spirit... Is command is the point of him is to bring us into illumination to truth and into unity with us. Here's what I struggle. I struggle with this. I struggle with the unity over uniformity thing, because I think, why doesn't the Holy Spirit make everybody think the way that I think you're making me think? Doesn't that make sense? But this is what God has done. God has created a diversity within the body of Christ to be unified in Christ. To seek and search for him. And if it's not clearly spelled out in the Bible, like Augustine said, we've got to learn to give people liberty. And we've got to learn to unite over the things that are definitely and desperately important. So here's what we need to do. We need to put our energy into following the Holy Spirit, not into being the Holy Spirit for everybody else. 
We need to put our energy into following the Holy Spirit and not into being the Holy Spirit for everyone else. Again, unity is not defined as everyone agreeing on everything every time. Here's what Paul said about the arguments and the people who were arguing in his church. Look at verse number five again. It says, one person judges a day to be more important than another. Someone else judges every day to be the same. He says, let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He said, in his own mind. That means we may have a different of opinion. And he says, let everyone follow their conviction. Saying that to his same church. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. What he's saying is, those people who were brought up respecting that, they're not respecting the, the, the feasts and they're not respecting those days because they think that if they don't, they're going to go to hell. They're respecting it to honor the one who saved them. Nothing wrong with that. And then he says, whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. See, those people who eat meat are thanking God that they found good meat at a discounted rate. And they're giving thanks to God and seeing that, that meat, even though it had been used for some weird purpose, that God allowed them to have the money to get that at a discounted rate. And they're thanking God for providing that for them. So let's let them do that. And whoever does not eat, it's for the Lord that he does not eat it either because they just don't feel right knowing what that had been attached to at one point. So let's give them the liberty to do that as well. It is for the Lord that he does not eat it and he gives thanks to God as well. Again, the key is, is my heart on God or is my heart on all these things that I'm doing? See, unity is not defined as everyone agreeing on everything all the time. Unity is achieved when we agree on following the leading of Christ as he has convinced us and trusting my brother and sister that even though his or her way of seeing non-essential matters may be different, they're genuinely attempting to seek and to please God as much as I am. Again, I'm not talking about people who want to take liberties and engage in sin. I'm talking about people who want to take liberties and follow Jesus. Again, with this alcohol issue, it's a struggle. Because you see so many people that, that don't intend to fall into alcoholism, but yet they do. Because it's, it's, that's why the warnings are there. Be careful, be cautious with it, right? We need to look at verses 22 and 23 here because it really unlocks something that's vitally important as well. And again, this is more of a teaching today than it is a sermon we need to look at verses 22 and 23. Look at this. And this is what it's basically going to say. If you're not fully convinced and with a clear conscience whether or not something is wrong, the best thing is to not do it. And here's why. Look at verse number 22. Whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. All right? Keep them between yourself and God. That's why I wanted to call it the gospel of minding your own business. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he does eat because his eating is not from faith and everything that is not from faith is sin. What this means is that if I'm a veggie eater or if I'm a teetotaler and I'm still kind of on the fence about whether this is okay, I've heard what somebody said and I'm like, okay, but I still feel in my heart this is wrong. And if I do it doubting, thinking there may be a smidgen of wrong in it, guess what? God has counted that as sin. You catch that? It's not sin to the people who are actually doing it with a clear conscience, but if you're not doing it with a clear conscience, for you it is sin. Because the Bible says, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. The opposite applies too. To him that doesn't know if something is wrong, thinks it might be wrong and still does it, it is wrong. 
So this is where we kind of have to come to land on that. Folks who are embracing that liberty and have that conscience of, I don't see why you have so many restrictions in your life. Don't look down on those who do because if they're seriously struggling with that, if they just go ahead and do it or if you bully them into doing it, you've just, you've just brought them into sin and that's what a stumbling block is. You see? So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. That means as well, if you've got certain convictions and God, and you're dealing with God about it, deal with God about it. So this means that for some of you who say, I just can't rationalize, come to grips with some of the liberty that others embrace, you say, well, I'm going to go ahead and try it out. I still think it's wrong. God accounts that as sin, while he may not even account that as sin to somebody else who doesn't find it wrong. This also means if you're on the liberty side of things, the meat eater side. Don't pressure or persuade people. Let God bring them along. And if God never brings them to that place, what does it matter? What does it matter? Because both of you love Jesus. We're going to get more into that in next week's message because there's a lot of wisdom that we have to unpack there. The question number two that we have before we get out of here this morning, actually, yeah, let's, let me just throw this here for you. Am I humble enough to learn, to grow, or change in my opinion? Am I humble enough to learn, to grow, or to change in my opinion on the matter? Now here's where some of you are going to start to bristle because I said the C word in church. And I didn't say Christ, I said change. Change sometimes can be a bad word, can it? And I understand why we get cautious about change. Okay? Change, we serve an unchanging God. In Malachi he says, I am God and I change not. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm always with you. We sing that song, Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Yes, there are some solid rock, eternally settled, unchanging truths. The foundations of our faith that we cannot remove, that we cannot compromise on, that we cannot shift on. And we need to respect and embrace that value of steadfastness when it comes to that. But there are some other things that we need to hold more loosely because it would honor God more if we did that. Someone once said, the only constant in the world is change. Right? The only constant in the world is change. Imagine that this unchanging God has created such a constantly changing universe. We saw that new telescope that was just released not too long ago. Man, we're seeing parts of our universe that we never knew existed. And we're finding out that as big as we thought our universe was, we're finding out it's even much bigger than that. And that everything is constantly in motion and everything is changing. And here's the thing. You're not the same person you were when this sermon started. And I know you're probably thinking, I know, I was probably a year younger when this started. But at a cellular level, you're not the same person you were when you, when you came in here. It's estimated that every minute that passes, three million cells in your body die and three million more are birthed. At that rate, with the number of cells that your body is composed of, that means about every 80 to 100 days, your body completely regenerates and you're a new form of yourself. I'm thinking, if that's the case, could I maybe like, like let some of my fat cells die and have like muscle cells regenerate in, in, in place of those? That'd be nice, right? But we are, we are literally, we reboot ourselves again. And re recopy ourselves again about every 80 to 100 days. We're not the same. This unchanging God created us to change, right? The greatest change we need is to be changed from death to life. 
But also we need to embrace change when it comes to our spiritual growth as well. What's the point I'm trying to make is that growth always produces change, even when it comes to spiritual growth. And I want to say this, beware the person that is rock solid the same 25 years later than he was 25 years ago. Whose opinions on non-essential matters have never changed or grown because that reveals a non-teachable spirit who holds those opinions up just as sacred as the gospel of salvation. See, because interestingly enough, Paul had a very strong opinion on a lot of the stuff that he was talking about. Paul didn't eat non-kosher meat. Paul, uh, or Saul, the, Saul of Tarsus would have never done that because he was a Pharisee that followed the letter of the law to the point. He would have always said, no, it's the Sabbath and the Sabbath only. He would have always said that. But then Jesus, and it changed everything. And in Colossians chapter 2, which is a parallel passage to this one, he says, since Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, there is nothing inherently special about any day of the week because Jesus is our Sabbath now. And if you look at our text in verse number 2 again, here is what Paul said. Paul does have an opinion on the matter. He's not saying, just do whatever you think you should do. He said, there's an element to leaving it alone, but need to be open to having your mind changed on some of these non-essential matters if that's what God is wanting to do. What does he say? He says, the veggie eaters were the weaker believers. What he was saying is the ones with the more restrictions were actually the weaker ones because they were still kind of holding on to that, I can make myself righteous by the things I don't do. And here's the thing that I think that we're prone to do so many times. We're prone to define my, our Christianity and our maturity by the things that we avoid rather than how much we've embraced of Jesus. What people know us by today, because this is what we, taught, we spend most of our time tweeting and posting on Facebook, is the things that we don't like and the things that we won't do. And we don't post much about Jesus who we love. What people look at, when you hear the word Christian today, what people think is that must be a conservative, politically person who won't do this, won't do that, won't do this. And there's some things that we need to absolutely say, I don't agree with this because the Bible doesn't agree with this. Absolutely. But there are some things that people know us and they know us of what we won't do rather than who we embrace. When Jesus said, you're supposed to know who you are by the love that you have for one another. Those who didn't understand this, Paul says, are weak or immature, underdeveloped in their understanding of the gospel. And that's hard because all my life I'm like, man, I respect this person. They've got some strong standards, some strong values in their life. And Paul is saying that if you hold some of those things up as like next to the gospel, you're not well developed in your faith. We're going to deal with that a little bit more next Sunday. So you get to spend a week looking at me like mad, all right? So the picture that we're given is the strong believer is the one who holds the gospel with a firm grip, but everything else with a loose hand. And Paul presented himself as exhibit A, didn't he? He said, man, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a zealot. I, man, I was all in on it. And then I met Jesus. And he showed me that all that stuff wasn't really what it was all about. That it was him. That it was Jesus that it was about. See, what this comes down to is this. If I haven't made you mad enough, let me go ahead and do this. See, all these non-essential things that we get real passionate about, we think we're doing the Lord's work when we, when we win the battle or we own somebody who has a different opinion on that. We think we're doing the Lord's work when we convince someone to come over to that side of the persuasion. But here's the truth. I can convince someone to burn all their Harry Potter stuff, but it's not going to keep their soul from burning in an eternal hell. Only Jesus can do that. 
You can convince someone to vote Republican, but it doesn't qualify them as one of the elect in God's kingdom. Because choosing your politician isn't the same as choosing Jesus as your Savior. See, by the, well, the, by the way, still, the overwhelming majority of voters don't know Jesus, whether they're Republican or Democrat anyway. That's the biggest problem that we have. It's not whether you're red or blue or whether you drink or you don't. Here's something that the church cannot afford to miss. Because the Lord's work, the Great Commission, isn't about calling everyone to third-tier agreement. The Great Commission is about calling them to first-tier gospel. And declaring first-tier truth. And you see, I, I can identify with Paul here. Because I can just imagine, because I had to fight the temptation as I'm, as I'm going through all those different scenarios that we went through here. To just say, here's what I think about that. And a lot of you might have been thinking, all right, Derek, I, I can't track you. I thought I used to be able to track you, but I can't track you on this. I don't know where you, where you come down on some of these issues and some of these things that you just mentioned. And let me tell you this, Derek may not be as confident as Derek used to be. 16 years I've been pastoring a church, this church. And I can tell you this, I'm a different pastor than I used to be. And that's a good thing because we have to grow, right? You might think that being a pastor for 16 years would make me more confident and settled on matters. And on some matters, Absolutely. But on others, I'm not nearly as confident as I used to be. Here's what I am confident about. That Jesus is Lord. Here's what I am confident about. That he's the only way that we can be saved. I am confident that he must be glorified in my life. In everything that is said and done. And that he must increase and I must decrease. And that I need him every step of that journey. And some of you may be sitting here wondering, what does he think about some of those things that were said today? And here's what I know and I believe more today than at any other time before. I believe that the place that I am standing right now in front of this book, preaching the word, the only place is not the place for me to tell you what I think about that. The place I'm standing right now is the place where I need to tell you the truth. Not to tell you my opinion, but to tell you the truth. And here's the truth. Jesus is Lord. He's the only way that we can be saved. That he must be glorified in this church and in our lives and in our homes. That he created you and he commissioned you for the church for that very purpose. That he loves you so much that he sent his own son to reclaim you and that purpose when you threw it away in sin and rebellion. And that he loves the one who disagrees with you about those third tier issues in the same way. And he sent the same son that died the same death to cover the same sins. So no, the pulpit is not a place for me to tell you my opinion. The pulpit is a place for us to tell the truth. And that's the truth this morning. And I want to close this morning by reading this parallel passage out of Colossians chapter 2. And if you're better to learn by reading it, it's on the screen. If you're better to learn by hearing it, close your eyes and just let the word wash over you this, this morning as we close out. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human traditions, based on the elements of the world, rather than on Jesus Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are also circumcised in him with a circumcision that is not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, it is you, it is which you were also raised with him through faith, the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. In the way my Bible is laid out, that phrase right there, the substance of Christ, lays out in the dead center of my page. I didn't, I, I don't know, I, mean, I know that's just the way the publisher laid it out, but man, it's like, Derek, you need it to jump at you like this. The substance is Christ. Are you making Christ the substance of your life? Are we making Christ the substance of our church? When we do, the gospel will reign supreme. As we bow our head and as we close our eyes, that's the question that I asked this morning. Are you making Christ the substance of your life? Is he the substance? Is he the savior of your life? Because following all the rules ain't going to save you. Coming to church every time the doors are open isn't going to save you. <sighs> following every program and every, every initiative of the church isn't going to save you. Only thing that's going to save you is your faith in Jesus Christ. You know Christ as your savior. The substance is Christ. If you don't know Christ, come to him today. Put your faith in him and in him alone. If you know him, is Christ still the substance? Because he's not just the substance of your salvation. He's the substance of everything. Are you walking with him? Is it a joy to walk with him? Or are you so encumbered with these, with man-made, just like it says here in, in Paul, like Tony Evans said, and all these things that we've shared. Are you just encumbered? Is, is your Christianity labeled more by what I have to avoid rather than who I get to embrace? you need to come today and talk, counsel, whatever it may be, would you please do so as we have this time of invitation. Move, Lord Jesus, in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand today, if you need to come for whatever reason, please do so. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.